Welcome to this episode of the Bet and Goods podcast. I have a very special guest today. I have Tevar Chow, who is an, an economics student at Trinity College, Cambridge, and an Emergent Ventures grantee. Hi, Tevar. Nice to talk to you. Hi. Lovely to be here. My first question for you is, you're really, really interested in economic growth. But one of the more surprising facts about economic growth is that the the levels of economic activity are very persistent across generations, right? You see it with Melissa Dell's papers in Peru and you, and you see it with papers predicting that uh, incomes in 1500 could have been where you were today. Given this, sh- shouldn't we be a little skeptical of the idea that, that we can influence economic growth over the, the very long run? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is this is absolutely true. Um, there is a huge literature by, as you say, people like Melissa Dell, but also people like Nathan Nunn, um, you know, Alicina and others like that, um, about this historical persistence. Uh, and I think it's, it's pretty clear by now that often um, historical traits, whether it's things like the slave trade intensity, like even like simple things like whether or not you used a plow, um, matter a lot to institutions, to social norms, to economic outcomes today. I think this is absolutely the case. Uh, however, I don't think this means that um, you can't change policies or you can't change outcomes or you can't change the trajectory. Um, I think like Melissa Dell has been asked this herself and I think she's like pretty clear and unequivocal that this is not the case. And the reason this is not the case is because oftentimes the specific uh, institutions or the specific like initial changes uh, in the state of the world that lead to a lot of these persistent outcomes are quite small. Um, so if you think about things like the use of the plow, um, it was that that meant that there was, you know, different gender roles, um, and in turn that affected things like labor force participation of women in society. But these are like very specific things, right? Um, and so I think the best way to think about a lot of this is just the world and the economy is like a quite co- quite a complex system. Small and like fragile shifts uh, matter a lot. And but by the same uh, view, um, it is possible um, to make small and like subtle shifts that like produce new uh, patterns of like specialization and trade. Uh, I think there's an element of whether or not this happens depends on like some coordination type issues. Uh, and I think it's certainly true that among entrenched institutions, this is quite hard to change. But I think the idea that like, you know, we, we are on this sort of deterministic path is absolutely like not the right way to view uh, growth, I guess. Given what we know today about these small changes that can change it. Imagine you were a time travel, time traveler, go, go, going back 2022 years. What would you do? What would be the most effective intervention to, to increase economic growth over the very long run? Yeah, I think that's a really tough question um, because I do think some of what the literature spots as you know, like these small changes that affect uh, long run outcomes are somewhat zero sum. So if these things had happened elsewhere, you know, like, uh, or if we just try to implement this a lot, they probably wouldn't have gotten very far. I think to me, I still probably fall back on the broad idea that like institutions matter, um, that like, you know, people's agency matters. Uh, I think there's a quite a good paper um, about long-term persistence, which looks at like Italy um, and looks at like the extent to which there were these like free cities in like medieval Italy. Um, and, you know, in those cases, uh, they saw that like there were cultural changes in terms of things like uh, self-reliance and like entrepreneurship that like 
into this day lead to better outcomes and things like civic uh, capital. So I think in my mind, if I had to go back, the like most important intervention for me is like ensuring that there's a lot of like uh, autonomy at like a local level to engage in experimentation. Um, and that is like, yeah, probably like the best policy option I can really offer. I don't think there's like a specific sort of direction I tried to push uh, the economy out at. Clearly, I mean, just giving you your example of the plough, that's not that's not clear, right? You you could have just said I would I would find a way to give ploughs to a lot of people doing ag ag agriculture, or, or, or I would speed up the I would speed up the wheel in parts of the of the of the world that didn't have it. I mean, if histor if uh, the broad part of economic history is is so much. Um, constrained by these small, small events, how would you, I mean, that that claim is not true, right? Well, I think there, or I think it's like absolutely the case that uh, the plow was useful uh, in like changing agricultural outcomes. But part of the point of uh, the paper is also that the plow was also like led to like, you know, different gender roles. And it's just really not clear to me that like, if we gave more people uh, the plow, whether or not some of these like second order effects on like labor force participation are bad or good. Um, I'd be like very, very suspicious uh, of how much the literature can actually tell us about that. I think it can tell us quite specific things about, you know, if X changed some particular uh, pattern of social behavior change, but to then link that to outcomes seems like really, really dubious to me. You speak a lot. You speak a lot about the literature specifically. What are the best papers, the the three or four foundational papers that one should read to understand the the long run uh, his, economic history of humankind? Just to clarify, this isn't just about persistence, right? No, not just about persistence, but but basically anything that if I said hi, Trevor, I can read. I can, I can read economics papers, but I don't know anything about long run economic history. Where should I start? Okay, I think that's a tough one because I'm not sure uh, I'd necessarily go with papers um, for this. I, I think sure, if, even, even, even books or blog posts or YouTube videos, anything. I think Bob Allen uh, is probably like the first person that comes to mind just because of his work in the Industrial Revolution um, and about economic history more generally. I think he has like a book about global economic history and he has a book about the british industrial revolution i think those two uh, are like incredibly good books at giving you a sort of broad sweep overview um of what did the world look like and why it did you know at least in some context why did the industrial revolution start in britain and i do think these two are still the defining questions of growth theory um beyond that i think Persistence is a sufficiently important stylized fact. I'd be keen on people thinking about this. Uh, in that sense, I'm somewhat agnostic between maybe Nathan Nunn's paper on the slave trade in Africa and the persistence there, uh, or Melissa Dell's uh, paper on Peru, I believe, yeah. Okay, that's fair. So, uh, on the same topic, why do you think economic historians don't cover enough? Obviously, they're bounded by the fact that we have a high standard for, for these sort of things. And it's very hard to get good data or even anecdotes about what happened 500 or 1,000 years ago. What is the piece, what is your wish list for, for economic history research? Be as wild as you want to be. 
this is perhaps quite narrow for economic history, but I'd be keen to understand better uh, why some of those uh, progress, like some of the progress necessary for economic growth happened. So, sorry, that sounds a bit vague. What I really mean is um, there's, I think, a very good graph that I'm not sure, or a very good set of graphs I'm not sure you've seen by Alex Stapp about um, some of the important uh, changes in the prices. So, for example, things like the price of sequencing a human genome, of things like lithium-ion batteries, etc. Right? Uh, you know, if you go back a bit, uh, Moore's law was obviously very important for the information revolution. The uh, the advent of coal was very important for um, the industrial revolution. I think there's like surprisingly little information about why this suddenly changed. Um, and I would say that when it comes to understanding economic growth, this matters a lot because, and, and perhaps the best example of this is, you know, the 1970s and like, I, I think, you know, things like the oil shock, but also like energy had quite a big role in how the world played out since then. Um, and I just don't think we have a very good sense um, of what the, the world was that led to, you know, Moore's law suddenly becoming a thing or coal suddenly becoming more accessible or oil suddenly becoming you know, more expensive, things like that. That's fair. Speaking of the of the oil shock, we've had a fairly um, lower rate of productivity growth from the 1970s. Do you believe in the, what is your preferred explanation for that? Because you have sites, you, you have the idea that once we went off the gold standard, every, everything went uh, went downhill. And we have ideas that, you know, in 1970s in the, in the US, there was a great deal of um, new regulation. But I don't think both of those explain, I mean, the first one, not at all. But the second one, even it doesn't explain anything outside the, outside the US. What's your answer? that yeah absolutely so i think you know if you look at things like union membership um that sort of thing i do think as you say or even just like yeah as you say like reforms uh to regulation um what you might think of as like the reagan thatcher sort of change um those do not strike me as terribly compelling because those are like not that global and i don't think like happen nearly fast enough um and in any case even if they did i think like you would expect to see some of these other changes uh, matched elsewhere in the world, which I don't think we've seen. Uh, so I, I am like very sympathetic to what I think is something Noah Smith has talked about, right? Which is the idea that uh, it is quite important um, that uh, the oil crisis happened. Um, I think the fact that suddenly there was this incredibly high variance event um, mattered a lot for how you know people started planning um, for energy costs in the future. Um, and you know, this seems like the most compelling um, case of like what we're now, I guess, calling the great stagnation happening pretty early on. I don't find that very convincing. We've had high variance events for like in the from 1850 till uh, 1900, there were around five or six American financial panics. And, you know, in, 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 in 1906 or in 1905, you had the, the earthquake in San Francisco, which led to another panic. And, 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 and you had the global decline in commodity prices in the late 1890s, which, which led to a mini depression. We faced high variance economic shocks for so long. What makes energy or the 1970s energy so special about? I mean, these seem like a very different sort of magnitude, right? Like, it's one thing to have like financial crises, um, 
and to have financial panics. But like financial panics by and large do not affect the real economy in any meaningful sense. Um, you know, there, there's like obvious hysteresis claims and I like, I'm not going to get into that, but I don't think it's like plausible to say that uh, when people make a lot of this long-term planning or when people like think about uh, capital expenditures or things like that, they're going to really price in um, the, pos- the fact that like we've had this high variance financial event. Uh, and even, you know, when you think about like earthquakes, I think like natural disasters become and have become uh, less and less uh, influential on people's decision. But until very recently, uh, and perhaps even going forward from now, uh, energy is still the thing that matters for basically every aspect of production. It matters for the transportation of goods. It matters as we've begun to uh, more and more containerize how we do like shipping. Um, like it is the defining constraint uh, of like just moving atoms around. Um, and that still strikes me as like a pretty important um, part of what the world is. Um, you know, perhaps like Mark Zuckerberg has different ideas on this, but uh, I think that's like a while away. Given that, do you, what do you think is the fundamental limit to uh, the to increasing energy consumption in the developed world? Is it nuclear regulation? Have we hit a gray? Have we hit the? Have we killed all the low hanging fruit in uh, energy production? Should we do what uh, Ted Cruz says and just um, start fracking more? What's the answer here? Right. So I think it's. I think it's a couple of things. The first thing is uh, we absolutely do need to think about renewable energy, and I think two of the most promising are uh, solar power. Like, if you look at the uh, cost of things like solar modules, they have gone down massively, um, and also like uh, nuclear power. I think solar power is a much easier sell because there are like far fewer obvious constraints on you know subsidizing like every building having like solar panels at the top. Like this just seems like an incredibly low hanging fruit if that could be possible. I think like for obvious reasons, nuclear power is difficult. You know, you're seeing a lot of panic on uh, Twitter right now as people like worry about the Russians shelling like, uh, you know, like a a nuclear power plant or whatever in like Ukraine. Um, People still have a lot of uh, anxiety and skepticism um, about nuclear power, which I think is really unfortunate because the sort of innovations we're seeing with like small modular reactors, um, with the sort of like, uh, I guess effectively like more portable um, type energy seems like really, really valuable. Um, I think as a consequence of these constraints, just like people's unwillingness to let uh, more nuclear reactors be built. Um, you know, the fact that like Germany is still like considering whether or not they want to keep their reactors on in the middle of what is very clearly a sign that we maybe should not rely so much on like foreign oil. Um, the, the obvious other uh, part of this answer is energy storage. So again, lithium ion batteries have become incredibly affordable relative to where we started. Um, and things like uh, that seem to be like how we're going to bridge the gap as we like slowly but steadily persuade people uh, about alternative energy sources. Um, finally, I think there's like some interesting stuff about like, you know, um, new ways of like, uh, and, and, you know, I'm not entirely convinced, but like, Nuclear fusions seems interesting, but I don't have a strong prior on how likely this is to play out. On the topic of energy transitions and renewables, there are two ways of thinking about this. The first is that governments should uh, try to increase the price of uh, fossil fuels so high that it becomes uh, that that it that the relative prices of the, of 
of these of uh, the new will become cheap enough. The second is that government should not very much try to, 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 to tamper with these, mostly because it's politically unpopular, but just try to subsidize uh, renewables. Now, what do you think, A, first, what do you think is, is the most likely path given uh, current trends in the regulation? And what do you think is the, is the economically appropriate thing for governments to do? Okay, I'll touch on the second question first, because I think that's an easier one um, to answer. And it's just that it does not seem obvious to me um, why, you know, like subsidizing, um, why, why we should uh, not subsidize um, renewable energy. Like, I, I think it's reasonably clear there are like very large externalities to this. Um, and I think the question then becomes, is this sustainable? And like, that's why I don't think these two questions can be separated, right? I think it's just pretty unsustainable to um, try and in some way tax or like, you know, uh, make uh, fossil fuels like less attractive. Um, people massively anchor onto things like energy prices, onto like um, how much like it costs to like, you know, fuel their car. Um, that just does not seem like a politically viable strategy to me. So I think in terms of like how governments are going to be able to get this done, um, a much more plausible strategy is just the uh, subsidy side. And indeed, I think it's like entirely consistent with like the optimal policy anyways. What's the answer to the first part then? What's the most likely path? Right. I think that's a, a harder question to answer. I'm inclined to say that the likely path of where um, most Western governments will go is uh, down the subsidies path, but not as much subsidies as I think either of us would like. Um, you know, and, and also when I say not as much subsidy, I don't just mean in terms of like, the dollar amounts. I also mean what's in. So I mean that the sort of subsidies I'd like to see for things like nuclear power just do not appear plausible um, politically. I don't think any government really has the political will for this. Um, I think like a lot of what were semi-promising like views about how to persuade people to build things in their backyards have just not really turned out as well as people have thought. Um, I think street voting was seen as this like incredibly amazing thing. There's like panacea to like housing problems in the UK. It really has not been. And like I am quite skeptical of the idea that like people will be able to do that much better for nuclear energy. Um, so I think this ends up being quite uh, limited um, to things like solar power, I think, or like, you know, in the case of uh, certain very specific situations like geothermal, hydroelectric, whatever. Uh, fair point. What can be done to reduce the fact that across the developed world in the last 50, maybe 30 or 40 years, we're having more and more of a vitocracy, especially with regards to, I mean, the vitocracy is seeping through crucial things like housing and energy, and you never know what's next. Yeah, um, that's absolutely fair. I think the key thing about a lot of these is that they are very different problems. So I don't think there's a huge catch-all solution um, to how we deal with nimbyism versus how we deal with you know other forms of like um, vetoes across the process. Um, to the extent to which there is one, I think my most obvious answer is the private sector. And what I mean by this is, for example, um, when we look at, uh, let's say, the slow pace of uh, 
drug production in like aging and in longevity, a lot of this is because of how the FDA has defined the diseases that are available, whether or not aging is one, um, and therefore whether or not it's very easy to get one to uh, like a drug to market. That seems like a place where uh, companies that decide to, let's say, bypass uh, the FDA by building up longevity drugs for dogs and then pitching that to the consumer until uh, longevity drugs are sufficiently popular that uh, it's much easier to lobby the FDA. That seems like a smart idea to me. Like, I think similarly, um, that is in many ways what uh, rideshare companies like Uber and Lyft did, right? Effectively, they ignored the law uh, or they took advantages of like vagueness in the law until their brand and their popularity was sufficiently large that it became very hard for you know government officials to enforce the law, as I think like you know officials in New York saw. Um, I think this is a bit of a risky strategy because it's worth pointing out while Uber has done very well in the US, it has done less well in other countries because regulators there have seen this threat coming and have been able to often like fend it off because they know that you know um, they're going to get the sort of like backdoor channel um, to like pushing through. Uh, past you know uh the veto of let's say you know the taxi medallion um interest right so i think that is one strategy um but that is a bit of a risky strategy and it's one that is quite hard to execute um because it involves you being able to raise a lot of funds and like hold out temporarily i think beyond that you know there are like various answers like within the housing sphere so things like street voting that i mentioned um you know you have people um like Professor Schleicher talking about things like, you know, providing uh, adjustment uh, compensation. So in the similar way to we, how we provide, you know, compensation to people who are harmed by the effects of trade adjustment, we would provide compensation to people whose like housing values are hurt by this. Uh, I think like it becomes a very like topic specific type problem. Although the moment you start compensating pecuniary ex externalities, you, you don't know what's going to end up next. So that that small note aside. Regarding the FDA and drugs, why is there so much elite conformity across countries, across ideological lines in the in several parts of regulation, right? America and China have very different views on how to run a country. They have very different philosophies. But the level of drug regulation across America and China is at least is not very different uh, and to the extent to which it is it is different it, it is different because in china they don't have the state capacity to enforce their existing laws so why do we have so much elite conformity well what i would say is that across like both of these countries and indeed across like most countries um i don't think how for example the fda operates is a like is really a function of the political system, right? Um, in the same way how like homeowners associations are pretty important across lots and lots of Western developed countries, um, even ones with like reasonably different like political overton windows. Um, that's just a reflection of the fact that like at a localized level, um, people have very specific interests. And you know, I, I think the same is true of uh, drug approval. It's just the fact that like people are very, very risk averse um, to having uh, medical mishaps occur that you know, if there's one thing, for example, that like people really fear as uh, was made prominent by like the uh, baby milk powder um, issues in uh, China, it's that like people get very much up in arms if there are like issues with like the approval of like food or drugs. Um, and that sort of like risk aversion is I think common across like most countries that like start developing or, or and or are developed. 
clearly wouldn't you're right in the sense that there's high levels of risk aversion but the political system matters in how you deal with it obviously in a country where the lower house is re-elected every two years the upper house every six years and presidency every four years means that you will have a higher degree of um of voters in uh, influencing policy but in china that's just not the case where you know chinese governments can pursue very unpopular policies that 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 affect a lot of people without losing their their monopoly of power they've they've done this with, with regards to land policy and the and the and the internal uh, permit system for decades now so I, I i i don't find that to be a very good um reason or to or to restate my case they they use their current authoritarianism for for somewhat unproductive reasons they could as well use it for more productive purposes well i i'm not convinced that these are exactly the same thing right so for example if you think about the sort of people who are getting displaced when um china built the three gorges dam um or in general like that sort of those sort of changes where um local governments have a lot of power, um, they've been able to do this because the number of people that affect is like reasonably small relative to the scale of China. Um, and the, num the people it affects are often people who are like in reasonably impoverished communities, um, who's, uh, which is why we have these you know, economic development projects. But when you're talking about things like drug approval, this is something that affects like a lot of the elites who live in you know, large cities like Beijing, Shanghai, or Shenzhen, right? This is things that, uh, and, and, and crucially, um, like, and I think this is perhaps most prominent, as I say, in the case of the milk powder scandal. Like, this was a thing that affected every, like, mother effectively who, like, had any access to, like, uh, you know, baby milk powder, which is, like, a lot of people, uh, and a lot of people who are buying this because they care uh, about their kids. I think that is, like, a much larger demographic, um, and it's a demographic that they can't contain or suppress um, in a way that's much easier if it's geographically concentrated. Fair point. I'm going to switch to something else. We've had a very, very big explosion in the uh, quantity and quality of econ blog in the last two, three years. Yours is one among the better ones, probably among the, the top 10 for people interested in the topics you write. What do you think is the is the future of this? Because I don't think that it's sustainable that, that in, in, in the case of paid blogs, it's not sustainable that 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 so many of them stay paid because consumers are going to have what is called subscription fatigue uh, very often. And in the case of free blogs, it, it's it's basically a function of how often do you, of, of, of how much energy do the writers have. So how do you model this situation? Yeah, so I think uh, a lot of the recent rise we've seen in blogs has come about in the last few years, uh, both because Substack has really taken off, but I think also because um, COVID gave people more time to write, uh, and also because uh, there's just more interest in economic policy now. Like, I think it's worth noting that a lot of people who would write about this sort of stuff during, uh, for example, the Trump administration were probably just much more concerned uh, with other issues, like, for example, electoral issues. Um, I think there was just, like, much less appetite to hear about, like, you know, on the margin what, like, optimal policy looks like, because we weren't getting any of these things through anyways. So I think all of these trends, like, worked to build what I think is, like, a pretty flourishing blogosphere, and I'm very happy it is flourishing, but I agree. Um, it's not sustainable, and it's not sustainable um, for, I think, especially for the paid side, as you say. Uh, I'm less sure 
about the unpaid side, I think as people have developed like individual brands or like uh, angles to economic issues, um, it seems plausible to me that a lot of these blogs will continue, um, perhaps in different like forms. So, you know, even in my case, a lot of what I used to write about was about much more short-termist things. It was about business cycles. It was about monetary policy. Um, and while these things are still very, very interesting to me, um, it's definitely the case that I'm writing about like things that are slightly more long-term now. Um, I think, you know, we'll see essentially people carve out these niches. Um, in my head, I imagine that like there is this falling off as like life gets back to normal and like people stop you know paying like much more for Substack than they ever did for you know the New York Times. Um, but I certainly think like a lot of the blogs are here to stay, um, and they're here to stay in like I think a much more like healthy ecosystem than existed let's say ten years ago. You've been reading econ blogs for a long time, especially given you're 19 or 20 now, right? Uh, what are the qualities of the most successful bloggers across time? Well, that's the thing, actually. Um, there are very few bloggers that have really, really stuck around across the entire time I've been reading. Um, I think the only one I can probably think of is Marginal Revolution, which you know was writing before I started, well, before I could even read. Um, and it's still writing today. Um, I think, and, 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 you know, there are like other blogs out there um, which, which have stuck around for that long, but like, it's certainly the case that like, I don't follow those as avidly as I do like MR. I think in terms of like the traits of a successful blogger, I think the key thing is finding um, like a very specific uh, niche um, that people like are willing to lock into. Um, so what I mean is like, you know, there are blogs out there now that are, essentially just what is happening this week, but with like lots and lots of very nice graphs and like data visualizations. Um, and that, there's always going to be a demand for that. Just as there was like, a there are blogs out there that are mostly about like economic history. Um, and just as there are blogs out there that hopefully, um, and increasingly so um, with the sort of flourishing of the progress studies world we're seeing that are just about, you know, how do we get progress? Um, and what are like, you know, some of the pivotal points there? I think, that is the first thing. I think the second thing is financially, um, there is like actually a lot of uh, better models of how people are doing this now. Um, and what I mean by this is in the past, I think a lot of people who wrote blogs stopped writing blogs because real life just took over. Um, you know, there are like very good blogs by young adults out there who I read maybe like back in like 2013, who are now, you know, PhD students or like, uh, like policy, uh, activists who Married just don't write blog. those blogs anymore. Or maybe they just have kids now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, you know, Substack has been part of this. I think grant programs have been part of this. Um, I would be keen on, and, you know, I think to some extent, maybe Astral Star Codex maybe also had some stuff in their Astral grants for Codex 10, yeah. Yeah, Astral Codex 10. Um, maybe they had... Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I think they had did fund some blogs. Um, but anyways, I think it's like that financial ecosystem. Um, it's very hard to monetize a blog is basically what I'm saying. Fair. What are your top 10 questions about progress studies? What are the things that, you know, it's a very new field. What, what should be written, but hasn't been written yet? Uh, 10 is just an arbitrary okay. number. Any, 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 any number would do. Okay. Uh, hmm. Well, 
I guess there are a number of things. The first thing is, uh, I'd like a stronger sense of how much endogenous like firm creation destruction matters. Uh, I think it's reasonably clear that uh, after 2008, if you look at firm creation numbers, they were massively down, and that's part of why it took so long for the recovery. Um, I think it's less clear uh, when and how people decide to like start firms or like you know um, how firms get destroyed. I think this is like a reasonably important part of the business cycle in the medium term that is like under analyzed um, and matters for progress because that's where a lot of innovation happens. Uh, I think things like, you know, whether or not, so you were mentioning like the importance of vetoes beforehand. Um, but I think it's less clear to me um, that the world has just changed because of these vetoes. I think there's an element of um, risk aversion that has occurred. And it's not clear to me whether or not people are risk averse because their fundamental preferences have changed or because there are lots and lots of like, I guess like semi um, high status type uh, career paths or like opportunities they can pursue um, such that the opportunity cost of like taking risks has changed. Uh, I think it would be like really good to understand that. Um, and in a similar vein, like when you're talking about vetoes, is it the case that there are just more veto powers or is it the case that there are fewer like Pareto gains that we can make, um, things like that. Um, yeah, I, I don't necessarily have a list uh, off the top of my head, um, but those are just some of the ideas. My other question to you is, um, I've lived in Singapore and India, two countries that are very underserved by econ blogging. What explains the fact, I mean, it is, I mean, the explanations are, are quite obvious why America takes up a, a majority of uh, econ blogging, but what explains, even after accounting for, for the fact that, um, that the majority of the internet is American, what explains the fact that relative to that also, we see very little international economic blogging? Yeah, so I think it's a couple of things. The first thing is, if you are a member of the British political like commentary class, um, you're expected to be able to comment and like make reference to US politics um, when you're discussing British issues. Like the number of people who framed Boris Johnson as like the British Trump, even though that is like absolutely like just crazy to me, um, <laughs> is is like staggering um and, and and you know you're just expected like it is just the canon of things you're supposed to know so i think from like a cultural point of view um that's also true of economics um it is just like the default um comparison you're meant to like think about you know whenever you're thinking about like inflation you're meant to think about 1970s when you know when like so i think there's like an element of that is just what has like dominated the canon especially because uh in economics uh us like grad programs are very very prestigious and successful I think there was like a second thing which is kind of underrated by everyone, which is just, it is really quite difficult to find good data outside of the US. Um, and what I mean by this is, for example, uh, a lot of the times when I'm trying to use British data for my own purposes, I go through Fred, not through like British sources. Um, and I think that is like a really underrated thing, but it's just like the Federal Reserve Economic Database is genuinely amazing. Um, and, and that makes a big difference to people's ability to write about it. Um, I I agree with you, but your, but your examples are of context itself. If thread is the medium by which you get British data, that that's okay. Just get it through through thread and, and talk about Britain. 
Yeah, but the point is, there are a lot of data series Fred doesn't have for the UK, right? Which are probably on the ONS's website, um, but which would be a much bigger hassle for me to get. And I imagine this is even more true of like other countries, which is, yes, Fred probably has like some of the top line things about GDP per capita, uh, but it probably doesn't have a lot of the more like detailed time series that I would want to use and like think about. I sort of agree, but I also think that there, there was once a time when we didn't have Fed or when it wasn't so good, and we still had lots of econ blogging in the US at the time. So that's not a very good reason. But anyways, I, th I, th I, think, I think your reasons are fairly good. A question from our, from our mutual friend Tom Spencer goes in the lines of what is the, many of the listeners of this podcast uh, have, uh, have an above average, I might say even top 10 percentile understanding of economics, how can they use that to improve the world the most? Sure. Um, before that, I just want to point out, like, Fred has actually existed for quite a while now. Um, I have a, you know, a, a, a merch jumper testifying to, to that. Um, so that's just a quick thing, which is, I, oh, I do feel like Fred has been around. My bad. Um, but yes, in terms of like using uh, economics uh, for like, I think like effective and like altruistic goals, um, it seems to me that the most important problems we have to face today um, are coordination problems. Um, so as unsexy as it might sound, uh, there is like actually a lot of gain uh, in, to be found in micro theory. Uh, microeconomic theory is an incredibly useful thing um, to think about problems of mechanism design. Um, and that is where I think a lot of uh, our like bottlenecks arise. Um, and I think, you know, that's perhaps a bit surprising to a lot of people who think about like public policy economics because they're often thinking about it in the context of like business cycles or growth or like you know, taxation or things like that. Um, but on balance, like a lot of these things don't matter that much on the margin. So growth obviously does, but like I'm not entirely convinced by how much thinking about growth theory formally tells you about what we should be doing or what we can actually change. I guess, but what about operational roles? Things like working in some things. I, I, I don't think most people should do econ research. One, because research is hard and two, because, well, it's a very small percentage of uh, people who, 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 who can do good, good research anyway. So 90% of it ends up being bad stuff. Oh, absolutely. Um, sorry, yes, I, I sort of took your question as like, a, if you kept on doing econ, what would this be about? Um, in terms of what like most people who are like economically literate um, should do, I think, okay, I think this is tough. I personally think uh, VC firms are a place that uh, people should go to more. Um, I think like, you know, at the risk of sounding super cynical, um, it's not entirely obvious to me how much change, like, you'll be able to make in governments that comes because of your additional economics knowledge. Um, but I think, for example, spotting talent, um, ensuring like you have like new innovative companies is pretty powerful. Um, a caveat to this, which is, I am also quite skeptical of people going into VC firms without having ever worked in an actual like startup or company. Um, this is incredibly suspicious to me. Um, and so the best answer I can really offer is, People should do something else first. Not very optimistic on the prospects of econ. That's are you? But anyways, no, no. 
Yeah, no, thanks for your answer. I would disagree with yours in some sense. Most VC firms will focus on consumer tech. And I'm deeply skeptical of the idea that better consumer tech, one more to-do app is what is going to have higher welfare gains for somebody 50 years later. The correct answer would probably be do econ plus some other thing like bio and, and become a biotech VC. But that, and that requires a lot more commitment from econ people, a lot more hard skills, which is like econ is the, to quote blind captain, it's the hardest easy major out there. So uh, it's, it's in, in, in many ways, I don't think that, that being in a, in, a, in a VC fund would help because the ones that, that accept you aren't very uh, useful from a growth perspective. The ones that, that are useful won't accept you. Oh, but I mean, this is why I say you should um, do something else, right? Like, uh, I absolutely agree. There are VC firms that, as far as I can tell, are not doing very much for society. But if you look at things like, you know, Andreessen Horowitz or whatever, like they are clearly, they clearly have a very um, strong sense of what they want to do with their money. And that is to like, you know, um, improve like economic dynamism and to like, you know, build like a better world. Um, and I think there is like an uh, a lot of room there for like economically literate and like smart people to go. Fair enough. What do you think about working in development agencies, especially in operations roles? A former guest of this podcast, Carl Karpinski, works in the World Bank, where a good part of his job is building up the financial systems of very, very underdeveloped economies. So he worked in Bangladesh in, in the in around five to ten years ago, where you know there was no central bank payment system, and part of his job was advising the Bangladeshi central bank on on ensuring that you could send money from A to B in Bangladesh without problems. And I think that is very, very effective. It is a very, it, 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 it obviously complicated because you can get to work with, with great people and you get to travel a lot, but also you impact the lives of a lot of people directly while using economics knowledge. I mean, yes, like, don't get me wrong. These jobs are very valuable, but I'm also pretty convinced that on the margin, every single year, there will be lots and lots of very well-trained PhD economists and like master's economists and undergraduate economists who go on the job market and decide to go into development. I don't think this is like a hugely underserved niche. Um, I think it's a very useful place to work. Um, but for the sorts of like economists who are actually thinking about um, what else they would want to do, right? Like this does not seem like an obvious, like this seems like a pretty standard path to go down. Well, yes. Okay, fine. I'll, 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 I'll take you on that. Um, my next question to you is, a lot of uh, economic theory emphasizes the role of institutions in long-run economic growth. I agree with that. But I also think that they forget that for cash up growth, as long as you have vaguely enough stable policies, vaguely enough good government, and just uh, no civil wars and no commodities, you will do very, very well across your life and like no socialism, I guess. And you'll do very, very well across your uh, 40 or 50 years. And I think that most economists either have a bias because they live in liberal democracies towards liberal democracies and against the sort of authoritarian dictatorships that, that, that get growth. I think that this is somewhat harmful for the state of knowledge in the, in the economics 
profession. What do you think of that? Yeah. I mean, I think this is absolutely true that um, the fact that most of our experiences, or at least like most of the experience of people, I think who write like the canonical stuff, is based in these countries. Uh, I guess as a broader comment, this is, I think, a broadly accurate view of how institutions matter. So it's not that um, you know you build these institutions and and, and you get growth. Um, I think they're very useful for whether or not growth continues. And you know this links into the stuff about persistence, right? Like they're very. Once you're on a particular path, I think those institutions are why you stay on that path. But I think it's absolutely true that like in bootstrapping um, growth, often what you need is not like, or you can't just like decide that you want better institutions and then build them and suddenly you get growth. Shouldn't we then in emphasizing, uh, you know, policy advice, shouldn't we focus on get the MVP of your, of your legal system and, and parliament running and then just focus on, on uh, attracting investments and getting exports out. Doesn't that mean that, that, that a lot of advice given to the uh, East European e economies was wrong because of this? Well, I think it's a bit of a harder question with what happens after the Soviet bloc. So I think if you're talking about, um, let's say a lot of the advice we gave um, in the form of the Washington consensus to like like countries that generally had never developed i think absolutely this was like oftentimes like just the wrong advice um because it's like quite difficult to build institutions from scratch i think with the eastern european countries there's an element of well they already had like a reasonable degree of these institutions yes they weren't very democratic but um the basic functioning of the bureaucracy was there and so in that case i think there's a stronger case for saying well yes what you needed to do was to reform it in ways that made more sense and were more inclusive. Um, but I absolutely agree with this critique when it comes to like countries that like really haven't developed at all. That's fair. What do you think of the big push theory of uh, many technological invasions? For, for listeners who don't know, is that a lot of technological invasions happen because of some big push, some coordinating factor that, that basically increases the, re, the, the resources to some uh, sector very, very quickly and to a great amount. One example would be World War II, where we spent a lot of money uh, making ammunition, and so a, a, a lot of better ammunition came out. That's that's obvious, but less obvious would be would be things like the uh, dot com bubble, where a lot of money was uh, spent figuring out on the economics of online businesses, and while a majority of those failed, you had. Uh, one or two that worked very well, and that's why you, you have Cisco and Amazon today. Uh, doesn't that doesn't that that imply that we should be less worried about bubbles because it, it will all work out in the in the end, anyways? Oh, absolutely. I think the key driving mechanism behind how people should think about growth is as increasing returns. Um, and the only way increasing returns work is if you like get people to buy into this bubble, right? Um, because uh, you often need this like, you need this like flywheel to start going before like you see a lot of these like very large returns. Um, I think there's a very good paper by Michael Kramer on like this idea of O-ring uh, models of growth. Um, and the idea is that, you know, there, if there are very, very strong complementarities between like different factors of production, um, what you actually need is like all of your factors to get better rather than like pushing some of them to be very good. Um, so, 
I think in that sense, like, absolutely, uh, bubbles are just a useful way of coordinating people's, like, knowledge about where we're doing this big push, such that, like, simultaneously lots and lots of things kick in. Your blog mentions that your in, in what economics tells us about cryptocurrencies. Well, what does economics tell us about cryptocurrencies? Okay, well, I guess the first, um, the, the, the first piece of context is perhaps uh, whether or not cryptocurrencies have any sort of value, right? Um, and obviously, like, this goes down to what people think money is. Um, and, you know, there is this, like, often used, like, uh, description of like fiat money as like this bubble that is like ever persisting. Um, I think this is like a reasonable description. Um, and I think as a consequence, I've never really understood people who criticize crypto as being a bubble. Um, like, yes, it, it is a bubble in the sense that there is no fundamental value. Um, and it might even be the case that the value of cryptocurrencies uh, diverge wildly from where they will like broadly be in like equilibrium. I think that seems like plausible to me. But, but that's not what? really a criticism. But like, what equilibrium though? I mean, isn't one clear equilibrium that the price goes higher and this leads to a self-sustaining loop only limited by budget constraints? I mean, yes, but, but the phrase only limited by budget constraints is quite important here, right? There, there isn't this like endless loop of like cryptocurrencies um, become like, yeah, there isn't this endless loop of, like, cryptocurrencies becoming, like, endlessly valuable because there are still resor real resource constraints. Um, what I think is important, though, um, is just the point that cryptocurrencies, like, once they bootstrap themselves into existence, can, like, persist forever. Um, and that's, like, I think a thing that a lot of people don't get, which is the, the memification and, like, the NFTs um, are part of why... Um, cryptocurrencies have money, uh, have value, and essentially, like, they've memed themselves into existence. Um, and I think this is not a bad thing, despite what, like, I think a lot of, like, crypto skeptics would like to think. I think that's, like, the very first thing, which is just, like, monetary theory should, like, make you think that, like, cryptocurrencies are valuable and have value once they have proven their value. Um, and, yeah, it, it really does befuddle me why, like, I think a lot of very, very smart people are so skeptical. Um, Basically, the meme theory of money. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Makes like, for a great headline. Thank you. <laughs> what is something you want to write about, but but you haven't had the time to, or just you don't feel nobody would would want to read? What's your niche interest? What's your super niche interest? So, okay, that's a tough one. Uh, I think this is a question I have wanted to write about for a while. I don't think it's that I can't write about it. I think it's just I haven't gotten around to it. Uh, and it's just, I don't think there's like enough work on like forced experimentation or like compelled creative destruction. What I mean by this is, for example, there was uh, some, a few years ago, a, a strike on the London Tube. And as a result of that, people had to change their routes, right? Um, and you can track a lot of this because um, people use Oyster cards in the Tube. Um, and, and what people found was that after the strikes ended, uh, some people stuck to their new routes and the amount they had to pay based on uh, their Oyster card was actually less. So it was actually cheaper for them and faster for them to travel on these new routes. Um, and, you know, while, while I don't think any of those people, if you interviewed them, would be terribly happy that their you know, commute in the morning to work got interrupted by the, the strikes, um, they absolutely increased, like, like 
the optimality of like uh, their transport choices because of this. Um, and, and, and so I think there was like a very good question of like, how do we engender this sort of forced experimentation? Um, it seems obviously bad to start a pandemic so that mRNA vaccines become, you know, commercially viable and like accepted. But it does seem like there is some optimal balance that no one like really has a strong sense about. Do you have any answers to that or are you still looking for them? Uh, I'm definitely still looking for that. Uh, I think some of the work I've seen focuses on other sorts of shocks, so trade adjustment shocks um, from like opening up and like signing free trade deals. Um, but I think those are much, much harder to identify. I think the tube example is like a great example of a really, really cute experiment that works out. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think I have a very strong position on how we create these, except with reference to my initial answer of, well, you just need Uber to break a bunch of laws until like taxi medallions stop being that powerful. It reminds me of, you know, uh, in developing countries, you have a lot more variance than you have in developed countries. Like a lot more strikes, a lot more power going down randomly or riots. Or, no, none of these things are good. But in my opinion, if you've got to go live in a country where the power shuts down every uh, every every month for a day, just to understand that things aren't stable in life. So I think that one of the pitfalls of just getting rich is that you lose your your street smart and you get a lot more book smart. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I think, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this is even the case with some of what we're seeing with supply chain constraints right now, right? It's just that. I think institutionally, a lot of developed countries have just never had to think about what happens when ports are full, what happens when transport doesn't like, work, what happens when basic facets of life shut down. Hardly basic facets, right? For a majority of a developed world, they still had power, water. I mean, the supply chain thing is, is, is true, like at least analogically. We're not very good at uh, analogy because it was a problem of excess, not a problem of too little. Oh, for sure. Well, okay, it's a problem of excess in the sense it's not like there are resource constraints such that people can't live, but it is absolutely the case that things are getting to people slower um, or that like deliveries have changed um, in, in like their scheduling um, or are more expensive. Like, like oh, I think yeah. these are just like, Definitely. yeah. Um, and I think like these are questions that are very interesting that I think a lot of people just did not think about before COVID. Question to you is what are you optimistic about the future, but what are you the most optimistic about? I think I'm most optimistic about talent selection. I think this is the area where smart and like well-funded people have perhaps given the most thought and effort to um, in the past, let's say five years. Um, it seems to me that there is a new grant program popping up every other day um, and for better or worse, um, this means that a lot of like opportunities are much more accessible than they ever were. Um, I think so. In terms of like the ability for like very high agency people to do cool things, I think I'm very optimistic about that. I am not yet as optimistic about whether or not we'll be able to match these people to like actually socially productive roles, um, but we'll see. What are you most pessimistic about then? I think it's that matching process. Uh, I think really the way... out of out of out of everything in the world that could go wrong, you're like, oh, some really smart people don't connect, don't get connected to those with 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 money. 
No, no, but this is not like just a the very, very smart people um, don't get connected with the perfect match of like capital, right? It's a systematically we seem very bad at figuring out how to like align people's uh, priorities. Um, so when I say talent matching, I don't just literally mean like you know employee to employer. I I mean like the entire focus of like entire industries seems like badly matched. I agree with that, but I, but I don't think it's a, I mean, it is a risk in the lost opportunity sense. I don't think it is a risk in the sense that it makes us worse off. It's just things, some things are really inefficient and we got to fix them. And there's no real pressure to fix them, but, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much the, the answer to it. My last question to you is, is sort of a reverse Sorry. question. Sorry, what? Let me, let me just cut in for a second. Sure, um, that, that is, I think absolutely the wrong way to think about this. Like mm -hmm. missed opportunities are harms. Um, mm -hmm. I think if like anything, if there's like any message that like effective ultras should be getting through, uh, full disclosure, obviously not an official effective ultras position, but you know, if there's any message that we should be getting through, it's that like action and omission are like two sides of the same coin. The fact that we're missing out on all of this is like incredibly bad. Um, as long as we're like not at the frontier of like post scarcity. Um, Clearly, I agree with that. In practice, I think that you got to prioritize and, it, and, it, and, and you got to optimize. You have to satisfy on, on many, many things. So, 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 so even on this, I'm like, yeah, it's a problem, but it's not a really big problem. We can, like, it, as in, if this wasn't solved, I wouldn't be very mad about it as compared to other problems. Fair enough, yeah. Okay, yeah, I, I think we both agree on most of these issues, just on the specific details on one side or the other. My last question, I, I, this, this is actually my, my last, last question, which is a more of a reverse question. What's, question. what's one question you want me to answer? Ooh, that is actually very tough. Um, okay, I think I have a, okay, cool. So I think in terms of what I'm interested in hearing you answer, um, you know, a lot of what you write about is economic history. Um, and a lot of what you write about is about growth and like, you know, before the Industrial Revolution, after the Industrial Revolution. But I'd be very curious to see you write about something way, way before that, um, to basically before the time of like, um, let's say money was even a thing. So the sort of prehistoric trade um, when you have barter or when you have like, you know, um, gift economies, I'd be very curious to understand some of the anthropology um, that occurs in those periods. Um, what do you mean by anthropology did, in those periods? Uh, so, for example, how did you know trade and exchange really happen? Uh, how did that evolve? Um, and how did those societies um, live in, in, in this world? Um, like, I, I think just like simple questions like that. Um, you know, we, for example, know that like there are trade networks um, in you know, like in, in, in the Near East, for example, that go back like thousands of years, um, like uh, BCE. Um, but we have a much like less strong sense of whether or not, uh, you know, what they used as a medium of exchange, how they operated, and, and like things like that. What's the time frame you're looking at, roughly in numbers? Uh, like maybe like 5,000 BCE, like somewhere 5, around there. BCE, huh, sure. I've, I've never read, read about it because to me that's, I think almost all history below before 080 is like more or less, I mean, 
it's not correct, but to me, it's more or less mythology than 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 history. I I I don't think we have a very good epistemic sense of what goes on, but I do. But I will find out and hopefully prove myself wrong. Yeah. No. I think I think there's like not a lot of primary like evidence that we we still really you know can trust. But things like, for example, like Sumerian tablets are really really interesting um, and discuss you know the exchange of goods for precious metals uh, and discuss you know. Um, how people avoided a formal, formal like barter process with like the sort of like debt like uh, interactions. Right. So in many ways, you know, the sort of Graeber debt hypothesis, but for much broader part of society than just okay. that. Yeah, fair. I will write about that. It will definitely go at the bottom of my twenty-seven point long writing pile. So in like twenty twenty-eight, I'll, 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 I'll hopefully get to that. Fair enough. What, what, what are some of the higher-up points, then? Uh, I mean, I don't think we're Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for a long time. It's a very... The U.S. market, market is very much a consequence of, like, human design. There's the higher quote of it. Uh, the purpose of uh, economics is to demonstrate to humans uh, how, how little they know or, something, or, or, or like, how little they can design something like that. And my answer is, you know, we had the U.S. mortgage market, which, which worked essentially fine from 1930 to 2007, and when it blew up in 2008, it was due to very different reasons than than what the high key and hypothesis would expect. And why did that happen? I mean, it had a bunch of mini blowups in the in in, in, in the eighties, but like, but it's something I'm very uh, fascinated about. I think I'm fascinated about is um, there are two competing normative views of of like not not life, but like welfare. And one of those is the Milton Friedman idea that. Anything that as long as you're not restricted to do things, you're good. And there's the Amartya Sen view, which is that that is true, but there are things apart from government in, uh, intervention or little force that, that restrict you from, from doing them. And as far as I know, nobody's ever done sort of a comparative study with, with examples of, of these because they both operate in very different social circles. Because Friedman worked with the vegan Tachi guys and Amartya Sen didn't do much political, I mean, he did some political work in India, but he, but it's very under-discussed in what computing visions of a good e uh, economic life look like. What other things? I'm right now, like at this very moment, uh, working on Japanese mobilization to, to World War II. Very, very interesting. They were completely delusional. Zero on 10, did not recommend to, to do again. Yeah, so that's pretty, that's more or less things that are going in my mind. Although all my best posts have been written, I get, a, I get an idea at like 2 a.m. and I write it from 2 to 4 a.m. So um, very high variance, can't promise anything. No, no, fair. Um, yeah, that's actually fair. I, 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 I'd, I'm always a big fan of more people writing online about the Second World War. Um, I think that is, despite how much that has been written about it, it's still actually like a, a field that has not been fully mined of content. Let's just say. The closest library to my house, moderately big, two floors up and down, maybe around two thousand square feet on on each floor, has five full sections related to Second World War. Maybe because this is Singapore and when we we still live in the in the in, in the shadow of nineteen forty two, but I I think the claim is less true, don't you think? Because the reason why I'm writing about it is because there, there's very good secondary material on it. So. I think it is one of the best well-studied events about the history, uh, about human history in the last, you know, 800 or, or, or so years. What makes you think it's not mind enough? Okay, so um, 
a lot of my interests in the Second World War, I think, boil down to uh, some of the military history. Uh, and I think it is like reasonably clear to me that there is actually surprisingly little um, clear like institutional detail um, about why some of the conflict. Uh, so when I say co like conflict, I mean like why some of those um, specific like uh, avenues or theaters of war went the way they did. Um, I think this is absolutely not true in the West, right? So we have like an incredibly clear idea of the campaigns in Africa, of Normandy, um, of the Eastern Front. Um, but I actually think uh, in the East, um, especially in the Pacific, uh, that is not the case. And uh, a lot of the literature that I've seen on, for example, uh, not just the Japanese mobilization, but how they end up structuring their conflicts and what like, you know, um, like leaders of Imperial Japan thought are actually still really underdone. There's a lot of literature in Japanese about that, but I haven't got into the internet for obvious reasons. I don't, don't speak Japanese. But I think a, a lot of this stuff I found to go into the bibliographies of the more famous books. If you want to do books like a book about, uh, the, the title has the word summits. Okay, but it, it, it's a history of the Imperial Army or uh, Hirohito and the Making of Modern Japan or any of those books. Yep. And basically, I, I think climbing to the bibliographies is, 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 is great fun. What are some books that the average listener of this podcast uh, would not have there? Because unlike my audience, they're very smart and well informed. What is something they should have there but have not? Ooh, that, that, is, that is a tough question. Okay. Um, this is perhaps not the most obscure book but i do think it's like a good uh book um and or yeah no i, I think this is true um and it's called how, how to stage a coup um i thought I'd, i thought i'd go on the list for buying it but yeah sure go on <laughs> pardon i thought i'd be put on some security watch watch list for, for buying it but go on oh yeah um <laughs> so i think it's like actually a very good book um because well as is the case with a lot of books that look at very specific uh types of institutions right um but it goes into quite a lot of like operational detail about how coups work um about why they're like certain like um you know why you know certain like uh dictatorships are much more resilient um and why um you know details of how you time like certain public announcements matter a lot um and you know i think likewise i think there's like a book called the dictator's handbook um i forget who it's by now um and i think yeah these two are like pretty interesting compliments wow okay my answers are, are very different I, i'm pretty sure most people listening to this would have either heard of or read the power book because that would be my answer to the general audience but to this audience, it would be go read McKinsey's evaluation. It's a very useful book. It's very and forces you to think about various finance slash economic things which you would not have. The other answer would be I'm just looking at my book list if, if I can find something. No. Uh, the other answer then would be read more Asian history. A lot of people don't read enough Indian economic history, uh, Indian history in general. So India after Gandhi by I'm blanking on oh, yes. Ramguha would do would do very very good. Oh yes, like the romance of the three kingdoms um, mm. is incredibly good, um, and more people should read this. Uh, it's a fascinating period of Chinese history. Oh, I 
uh, are the English translations any good? Because I'm not, I'm not gonna learn Mandarin. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure because I read a lot of this in Chinese. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, but I, I, I do think. No, I'm pretty sure there is like quite a good online translation somewhere. Uh, and I've read chunks from it before, and it seemed fine. But I've never read the whole thing in English, so I, I wouldn't be able to say. Another classical education in the sense of reading classics, is it anyway better off? Because that was the part of like a good percentage of pre-1950s education for elites, right? Uh, yeah. And I think it is. Like, okay, I'm not sure only doing old Latin. Books. Why does it matter? I mean, the good book, but it's it's stories, good on facts. That's that's more useful. So, um, <laughs> I, yes, I mean, like, absolutely, like, the, the fact that people used to only learn Latin and Greek is perhaps a bit concerning. Uh, however, uh, there is something quite pretty, which maybe this is just my failure to appreciate English poetry, um, but I really found reading things like the Aeneid um, uh, or reading like authors like Tacitus or Caesar, like, you know, in the original Latin to be just like enjoyable in a way that very little like fiction has ever been for me. Um, and, you know, it is still about uh, and offers like a good perspective on um, how they saw their countries, which is very different to how I think historians have uh, seen uh, their countries in the rule. Fair, but I'm not. I'm not going to read Latin either. Never understood the the emphasis. We have one link language for the entire world. So an Indian guy in Singapore, like me, can can speak to you a Hong Kong in, in the in the in the UK. So I see. I I I I'm like I'm very much an English imperialist for the next maybe fifty or twenty years. Still, the <laughs> let's let, let's wait till the Chinese state gets powerful enough to force me to learn Mandarin. But okay, I will stop recording now because we far exceeded our uh, time limit. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you for having me.